Welcome to the Ladies of the Chains Disc Golf Podcast. In today's episode, a feature interview with Tina Stenitis, and we discuss growing the women's game. All right, time to talk ladies disc golf. Hey everyone, this is Becca Kephart. Thank you so much for joining us. With me today are two voices you've heard over the last couple episodes and the two newest disc golf commentators, Team Ozone Discs Nova Polite and Team MVPs Kim Janola. I'm very excited about today's show and hopefully by the end of it we will have solved how to grow women's disc golf or at least had a very productive conversation about it. I also have some exciting news about FPO coverage and we're going to do our very first giveaway and I'll have more information about that at the end of the show. That giveaway is made possible by the incredible Valerie Jenkins. But up first is our segment, What You Been Discin, where each one of us shares one disc golf related thing that we are excited about. Nova, what you got? Well, with uh, the return of spring, the uh, ice has melted off of a couple of uh, ponds on some water shots on uh, local courses, particularly in Liberty, Missouri. So I dug out the wetsuit and I've been squidding for discs again. Uh, anything that's got a name and a phone number on it goes back to its owner. You wouldn't know it from the uh, snow that just fell today, but uh, water's been reasonably good, about 50, 60 degrees, which, you know, it's We'll kill you in a half hour if you just jump in in a swimsuit, uh, but it's not too bad in a wetsuit. I can stay out there for about an hour or two, um, then I drive an hour home, then I spend an hour and a half rinsing off all the discs and cleaning my wetsuit, and then because it's only 55 degrees outside, it takes forever for all the gear to dry, but all of this work is worth it at the end when Randy's, who I really don't know, just come up to me at a tournament, and they're like, you're Nova, and I'm like, who's asking? I mean, Yeah. And they're like, no, no, you, uh, you, you got my disc out of the pond. You returned it. Uh, the local DD shop gave me a call, said they had it. It still smells like the pond. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Putting, uh, putting names to faces. And every tournament uh, at least happens once. Um, so it's, it's a good feeling. That's awesome. Yes. For those of you that don't know, Nova is a disc golf hero. And so if you lose your disc in a pond, know there is always hope. If you're in Missouri. <laughs> and if it's inked. Yes. Uh, if the disc comes out and it's got no name and no phone number on it. Right. I'm not clairvoyant. All right, Kim, what do you got? This year, I decided to explore the FPO field a little bit and play up, perhaps. Um, so I played three professional tournaments this year. Most interestingly was the Monkey Island Open in Emporia. Yeah. I got to play with uh, Nova, Carly Shintaku. Denise Cameron, and Paige Birkus. And that was very, very enlightening from the perspective of getting to play with someone who definitely was better than I am. Also this week, I just got done with the Lawrence Open, and that's my first FPO win to a certain extent. And I cashed in both the Monkey Island Open and obviously at Lawrence. And to retain my AM status, I passed up the money. And I'm going to say that's $235 that was really hard to walk away from, but I'm not entirely certain I want to go full-time pro yet. And once you accept cash, it's kind of no no coming back from that. So still in the feeling out phase, seeing what I think of, of playing up and we'll make that decision later this year. All right. So for me, I had a couple weeks there that were really crazy, had a week of travel and then um, had a week of just kind of crazy busyness. And I guess let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. We got to commentate for uh, the first two um, rounds of the Waco Annual Charity Open. Thank you, Terry Miller. Yes, thank you, Terry Miller. That it was, was a good time. That was really, really fun. Uh, but it did keep me up editing audio rather late. Uh, so it was really, again, it was awesome. We would love to do it again. But I did not get to play it all that week because I was kind of busy doing some disc golf things, but not actually playing disc golf. So I was pretty excited this last week to kind of get back into my practice routine a little bit. Um, there's a nine hole not too far from here, and the holes vary in length from about 165 feet to 350 feet. 
And right now I'm really trying to work on my accuracy. Um, So I'm limiting myself to putters and mid ranges on that course until I can hit even. So getting closer um, and hopefully the weather will be a little bit more cooperative moving forward. We're having a little bit of a rough spring here in Kansas City, uh, but I really want to get back into my practice routine and uh, working on my goals for this season. All right, very good. So we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, my interview with Tina Stenitis. Ladies of the Chains is proudly supported by Ducks Flying Discs, offering all players a country club level experience on all of the top brands in disc golf. Mention Ladies of the Chains and receive 10% off your next order. Find them on Facebook or call them at 316-765-2334. Also visit their website, ducksflyingdiscs.com. I'm here with Tina Stenitis. Tina is a touring pro sponsored by Dynamic Discs, is the owner-operator of Whale Sacks, and half of the team Whale Pants that travels all around, runs events, and produces some really fun and informative social media. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so for those that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about your disc golf journey and how you came to disc golf? Yeah, I've been playing competitively for, I think, about four years. Uh, I've been playing in Open for two years, um, two and a half-ish, I guess you could say. But I'm still relatively new to the scene, which means I'm just paying my dues right now. But learning every tournament that I play. I, like you said, own Whale Sacks. Um, That's been around for four years as well. Kind of once I discovered competitive disc golf, that really became a part of my life and has grown a lot. It's too much to handle. It's a good problem, but (laughs) it's a problem. So, and then like you mentioned with Whale Pants, um, my fiance, Eric Oakley and myself travel around and we wanted to find a way to get back to disc golf. So we run events and do free clinics all over while we're traveling and touring. So we do a lot. Um, We're busy and, you know, disc golf, although that's the biggest part of it, I guess for me, it's still kind of a hobby until I can really start earning money doing that. But right now, Whale Sacks is really what's getting, getting us through and um, obviously our sponsors dynamic, um, help us stay on the road all the time. So cool. So with that, what made you decide to start whale sacks? Part of it was a decision, but part of it kind of just fell into my lap. Sure. It's one of those lucky mistakes that if you're a hard worker, you can make it work. I made these little square bags. I think the first year I ever played disc golf. So that was eight years ago, I think, cause I've been playing casually forever. And um, I grew up in Wisconsin, so it's super humid in the, in the summer. And so I made these little clay bags and it had whale fabric. Apparently I've had a thing for whales forever. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, my friend Aaron and I were sitting around when he came for Portland Worlds. And I had made one that accidentally looked like a bunny because I wanted it to tie on, right? And so we were just chatting about that and the whale thing, and we just kind of came up with, well, let's make it the shape of a whale. So I made my first two or three, I think, that weekend. Gave one to Barsby, Greg Barsby, and Aaron, and then I think I have the other one still, like oh, cool. the first run whale sack. <laughs> <laughs> so it really started as a hobby, and you know, I made 10 or 12 of them and gave them to friends and then um, started selling them, and then, of course, the website came along so it really like slowly built itself into what it is now um getting into shops and sponsoring players uh i think zoe andike actually was my first woman sponsored player and um Paige came in shortly after that so that's kind of when it started to feel like a real company um obviously the website too so i had no idea it was going to be what it is now but it's got me as far as as I have to be able to tour and do all that stuff so that's awesome yeah so you talked about how you guys are really really busy um so can you talk a little bit about finding the balance between disc golf work and disc golf play (sighs) that is probably the hardest part Eric and I are kind of on two different wavelengths and I love disc golf but I can't do it 24 seven. It makes it not fun. He can, he can do it 24 seven and he wants to. And so we kind of have a, that's probably our biggest battle is like, well, I can't go to the course right now. I have to work, you know, and he, that's all he wants to do. So there's a lot of push and pull, but 
Um, luckily with the RV, we've got a generator. We can go to the course and I can still sit and sew and do all those things that I need to do. So I try to make sure that I don't do it too much, that I don't play too much, that it takes the fun out of it for me. Um, my practice rounds before a tournament starts, I really only want to play one. I don't want to play for four days before I have to go play competitively for four days. So um, him and I are very different in that regard. But I think the first year of tour was the hardest because I didn't know how to balance it. And then the end of last year, I got a little bit better about, well, I need to go do fun stuff too. And, you know, trying to get people to help me with whale sacks instead of doing it all myself like that too. I can be a workaholic really easily by accident. So, um, and that's actually, for those of you that don't know, I'm injured right now. (laughs) Um, That's actually kind of how that came about too much disc golf, too much work, and I'm doing all this tedious, repetitive work, so I'm kind of paying the price now, but it's making me have to relax and enjoy it a little more, which is a good thing. (laughs) I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. That's the cool, like, positive way to look at kind of a tough situation, (laughs) right? I'm going to make the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. So kind of going back to playing, what's one thing that maybe you wish someone would have told you in your first year of playing or just something that you wish you would have known when you were first getting started just playing disc golf? Man, maybe something too specific, but nose angles and like (laughs) angles in general. I feel like that is like the main difference between amateur players and pro players. And we teach so many amateurs and, you know, they're complaining about not having distance, but they're trying to throw so hard that their angles are off and then they throw it nose up and you can make an understable disc look like an overstable disc just because you have the nose up. It fights, it's fighting against the wind the whole time. You can just tell if a player is like of a higher level skill level based on where their nose is or like if they understand their angles. Um, I know that seems like such a simple concept but it really does make a big difference yeah I think that's huge that's definitely something I didn't even know to think about I I don't think yeah I don't think I learned it until last year and I've been playing for eight years like that's ridiculous (laughs) that's awesome um so we're going to be talking on the podcast today about growing the women's game and I'd like to ask you a couple questions about that uh first (laughs) Kind of the hot topic right now <laughs> seems to be about tee pads and tee pad placements. So I was wondering how you feel about tees, uh, special tees for women, how you feel about the disc golf pro tour moving a few tees back. It's a tricky subject. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm... Hmm. That's a really tricky question. I could be on either side of the fence and it's really hard to say, I don't know what the right thing is to do. I really appreciate the pro tour trying as hard as they are to grow women's disc golf that I appreciate that so much. So I don't want to, you know, push back on anything really. Um, I did play the Memorial this year and there were 10 shorter tee pads. And I think that was too much, mostly because a lot of them were already short holes or it took the challenge out. And I like challenge us. We still need a challenge. Like I understand that distance is an issue and like some of the par fours they brought us closer so we actually had a chance to birdie but you still had to throw really good shots and I love that you know some of the shorter ones I just don't they'd move them out of like trouble zones and it's really just about throwing a great upshot and like we still need to have that skill so um you know Paige is one of my my best friends and she's the furthest thrower in the great in the game and she's worked for that she's earned that and so I don't want to see them shorten the tee pads because the rest of us can't keep up. It's our job. Like, I'm not a far thrower. I throw 300 feet. And I want to throw further, but it's up to me to learn how to. It's not up to them to make it easier for me. That's That doesn't seem fair. If Paige can do it, we can all do it. We just have to put the time in and dedicate, you know, our efforts towards distance if that's so important. But at the same time, players without distance, Sarah... You know, she's one of the ones that's fighting for the shorter tee pads. She's got amazing accuracy and like she's got all these other aspects that make up for it. And that's important, too. It's just like everybody's game so different. But I hate the idea that, you know, that Paige isn't going to be rewarded for having long distance. The same with Kat. Like they earned that. Don't take it away. 
And that's the fun stuff to watch. We love seeing it. So I hate the idea of that not even being in our game anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really cool perspective. Thank you for that. (laughs) What do you think are just some general good ideas to help get more women interested in disc golf? Um, I think it really starts with your community. Um, I know Kansas City has an amazing ladies league, and I wouldn't be here today without Portland's women's league. Like, that's just a fact. I was still playing super casually in either barefoot or like the worst shoes ever (laughs) (laughs) at like courses in Portland. And this girl, Joanne, that was part of the Portland Ladies League is the one that came up and said, we've got a women's league. I think you'd love it. You should come. And I did. And I've been competing ever since. And I didn't know anything about it until that day. Just having that community and it can start with four girls and it will grow. Um, if you, if you're inviting and just encouraging, but I think women having other women to play with is really important. It can be intimidating playing with guys and, you know, they're throwing so much further and you feel bad for waiting or making people wait and, you know, they're just passing you up or maybe you're just self-conscious because they're blowing you out of the water. But when you get to play with women of your own speed or even above you, you get to see, wow, I can do that. It's hard to compare with the men that, you know, they just naturally get to throw further. It sucks, but, like, someone that has no skill at all can still throw 100 feet further than me. That drives me crazy when I first started. So um, having other women to just bond with and teach each other, um, you know, you guys are lucky. I was lucky (laughs) to have that many, like, 40 women in one place that I could learn from and and teach and you know we can all feed off each other so without that I don't think it would have sparked my interest so I know that other people react to that as well yeah absolutely I like that a lot so that was a pretty broad question here comes maybe (laughs) an even more broad question (laughs) where would you like to see disc golf in 10 years what are your dreams for the sport and for yourself hmm 10 years I mean, ideally, we'd be 50-50 women and men. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least a little better, because I think we're still sitting around like 8% Uh, or something ridiculous. And honestly, like, we are growing in the right direction. It's just slow. The field sizes every year since I've started competing have been growing every single year. So that's a good sign. And exponentially, it's not just, oh, there's one more lady this year in each tournament. It's like, oh, there's six. There's... 10 there's you know it is growing um but I think that is for a touring professional perspective um that's where we suffer the most we just don't have the numbers so the payout it's so much harder to make money there there just isn't money in our field so that's just how it is and without numbers there's just not much we can do um personally I'm going to be optimistic and say that I'm still going to be playing in 10 years, um, which is why I'm taking a break right now so that I can keep playing. I want to be one of the best. I want to be top 20, top 10. Eric and I kind of just chatted about this maybe two days ago, but we still want to be in disc golf. And no matter what, we'll be teaching or running a store or running events like Steve-O down in Texas, like we're going to be involved with disc golf. That's all there is to it. Whatever shape that takes on doesn't really matter to me. I hope we're still playing, but we might not tour as much as we do now. We're like, we're doing it hard. So (laughs) it's a lot of time on the road, but, um, we know we're going to be in disc golf forever. That's just, uh, who we are. That's wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of being on the road, uh, what upcoming Well Pants and other events do you guys have? We're running the Bag of Tricks events. Um, It's a really fun way to just get out and play with your trick shots. Sidearms, backhands, rollers, forehand rollers, like all these different shots that you wouldn't normally throw. It's a blast. It's so much fun. And you get to see people get out of their comfort zone, but everyone there is out of their comfort zone. So it's like a group feeling and like you're just playing and everyone's so happy, even if they played a terrible round. It's so fun. Um, So we're doing some of those. Actually, 
tomorrow. Paige and I are flying to, flying to Nantucket to plan Eric's and my wedding. <laughs> so I get a little break for a little bit. But then we will be at the Vintage Open and then back here in Kansas City. Actually, yeah, um, the Marksman League. Or Marksman, I don't know if they're calling it a league. It's at uh, Waterworks with uh, Launchpad. So we're helping with that event um, right before Glassblown Open. And then we're going to do... I mean, we're going to be busy at Glassblown for sure. So, um, I mean, pay attention to the bag of tricks on uh, Whale Pants on Facebook. We have our events on there. So definitely come to one of those because they're a blast. But we'll be back in KC quite a bit. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Tina, for talking with us and giving us some really great insights. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The fourth annual KC Diva Spring Fever is coming up on May 12th. This tournament has become one of the most anticipated and well-attended female-only disc golf events of the year. For 2018, it is also a part of the PDGA Women's Global Event. These women-only tournaments will be run simultaneously around the world to virtually create the largest women's tournament on the planet. In addition to the competitors, there will be countless volunteers and spectators at the event that will be exposed to your business and brand. If you are interested in sponsoring or supporting this very special tournament, please visit kcdiscgolfdivas.com. And welcome back. Today, our topic of the week is one of the hottest topics in disc golf right now, growing the women's side. So let's dive right in and start with the FPO coverage discussion that has been going on. And we have some really good news that I'll get to in a moment. And I don't want to dwell here too long. But first off, all of the high fives to Addie Maxwell. She really stuck her neck out and wrote some things that many of us had been thinking in her op-ed. And for those of you that may still not know what we're talking about, um, Addie had an op-ed article on Ulti World calling for more FPO coverage and really calling out the Disc Golf Pro Tour. And I'll get to that here in a minute. But a quick shout out to Ulti World Disc Golf and the Upshot podcast and all of the good work that they are doing. They've been very supportive of our podcast, and I certainly want to thank them for that. So Steve Dodge is doing a Disc Golf Pro Tour podcast now. He had Addie on a couple weeks ago, and I really recommend that anyone interested uh, in this listens to that conversation. I think it gives a lot of important perspective, and I certainly commend Steve on taking the time to speak with Addie. Uh, Steve is coming at it from a business perspective, and he should be. Uh, He says actually in the interview that he hopes the Pro Tour breaks even this year, which I would certainly take to mean that it has not made any money yet. Uh, But here's what I think is at least part of what happened because it's what happened for me too. And I think what kind of led up to this is last season, at the end of last season, Steve Dodge released this big list of FPO improvements that were coming in the 2018 season. And part of that was more and better FPO coverage and Addy and I, and I think a lot of people got really excited, but I think maybe it just wasn't communicated well, or maybe we put our own expectations into it because when we got to the live coverage of the memorial, We just had the same very quick splicing in of FPO into live MPO coverage, and it really just felt like more of the same. However, now I am aware and understand that last season, we didn't have the full post-produced FPO coverage from the Pro Tour, and now we do, and that was really the biggest improvement the Pro Tour was going for. We just had our expectations in a bit of a different way. But here comes the really good news. I had read an Ulti World interview with Jonathan Gomez before the season started, and Jonathan had said if things went well at the Las Vegas Challenge that they'd be covering more FPO. So I reached out to Jomez to find out where things are at, and this is what Jomez replied. They said, we are definitely trying to do as much FPO coverage as possible this season. Currently, we are still only one crew, so we are limited by properly spaced tee times at events. That is to say, there is a long enough gap between FPO finish and MPO start to cover most, both divisions with the same crew. Some NT events are not able to make that happen, so we aren't able to do both. But the good news is that the PDGA is putting a priority on equal MPO and FPO coverage for these events, so there will be someone covering them if we aren't able to. Hopefully in the near future, we can expand our crews to cover multiple divisions, regardless of time limitations. So if I understand everything correctly, and I believe that I do, this means that Terry Miller is doing post-production FPO coverage on all Pro Tour events, 
and Jomez or someone else will be doing post-production FPO coverage on all NTs. And that's kind of awesome. That is so much more coverage of the FPO than we've ever had. What do y'all think? Well, it is an improvement. I'm going to give it that. Um, but I still don't think it's quite there. You take the most common and the best example, I think, which is professional tennis, uh, which had its own revolution in uh, gender equality and coverage in the uh, 1980s. Since then, uh, the deal has been basically um, for a major, if a network wants to cover a major tournament, one of the four Grand Slam events in tennis, they have to televise the men's games and they have to televise the women's games. That's the deal. Uh, the governing body says, you broadcaster, if you want the rights, you're buying them all and you got to do this. And right now we're in sort of a separate but, but almost equal kind of territory. Um, and the problem is no crew, uh, whether it's CCDG, Jomez, Terry Miller, no one crew has the assets of NBC, CBS, ABC, ESPN to, you know, roll in some trucks and have multiple groups walking around covering multiple venues. And at a, at a tennis tournament, for example, uh, you've got the main court, the center court. Uh, you can set up your commentator's booth, you can set up your cameras, and they're all pointed at the same playing area regardless of whether it's a women's or a men's match going on out there. Uh, at a disc golf tournament, um, the men's and the women's cards might be playing across town from each other simultaneously. And we don't have a crew that can logistically handle that right now. Um, so the system that's in place now, it is an improvement, absolutely. And I think until the sport grows to the size where we've got video crews capable of doing more at the same time, at the same level of production quality, um, we're just not going to be there. So it's a matter of growing the entire sport. And it's also a matter of having an external audience that advertisers are willing to buy ad space to cover. Because right now, I don't know of anybody who's not a disc golfer who is watching disc golf. We are an internal audience for the sport, and we need an external audience that advertisers want to market to and pump money in so that we can have larger video production companies to get us this equitable solution. We're getting there. We're by no means there, but I think that's the roadmap forward. I'm going to piggyback off of the tennis argument, both that Nova made and that Addy made. Um, Addy said something to the effect that most tennis fans in the world are as familiar with Serena Williams's game as they are with Roger Federer's game. And part of that, like Nova said, is the fact that at the major events, there is both women's and men's coverage. This is something I think has merit in the disc golf field, and no one has really thought to do this. Now, we do combine, as you said, the FPO footage into the live MPO stream, and a lot of the comments have been, this is good. Um... The players who are watching the MPO field like seeing what happened in the FPO field while there's the walk-ups to the next lie and, and things like that. We should consider, perhaps, and you know, Jomez and CCDG and Terry Miller could certainly chime in on this, instead of splitting the videos into, this is the FPO front nine, this is the MPO front nine, stuff like that, combine that. And... Yes, there are logistical problems, as Nova said. If they're playing different courses, that type of um, setup won't work. But if they are playing the same setup, just at different tee times, there's nothing wrong with trying to combine this into one release as opposed to two separate ones. If we're worried about viewership, combining this does put the FPO field in front of an audience that may not otherwise see it, and it does tend to grow it, especially as more and more stars, I guess, of the FPO field become known to the other disc golfers in the sport who are watching this. The um, other thing I wanted to address on that topic was a lot of men don't throw like Simon. They don't throw like Paul. They don't throw like Ricky. They don't throw like Eagle. They don't even throw like uh, James Conrad or Jeremy Colling. They throw more along the lines of Kat and Valerie and Jessica and Paige. And they like watching the women play because this is more reflective of the game they currently have and the lines they are going to have to throw as opposed to the big arms in the men's game. So the 
perception that men don't want to watch the women's game, I think, is is incorrect. Um, I think there is an audience for the women's game amongst both genders, and we're maybe rearranging the format as the way to find that. And it's kind of interesting because, kind of to both your points, the fact that we have disc golf video media where it's at right now is a lot due to where technology is at right now. We're able to do a lot of things that we weren't able to maybe do five, 10 years ago, just because the technology is there. So I think in addition to growing the sport and growing viewership as technology moves forward, there will be more opportunities because right now we're extremely limited on live coverage in general, right? Like we've got pro tour live coverage and that is it. And they're limited in their resources um, and they're, you know, going to make decisions and do what they're going to do. And I think it's kind of interesting to your point, uh, Kim, about maybe mixing in the coverage. Cause if you guys watch like the old Chuck Kennedy videos and the things like that, cause that, that's mm-hmm. what it was, right? Like you can go on YouTube and it is so fun to go back and watch, you know, like worlds from 1993. Like it's nuts. It's so cool. But you don't have necessarily like full round coverage or anything like that. It's highlights, but it's everybody, right? And that it even goes across divisions, I think. You know, it's not even just the pro stuff. So I think there's a lot of room for creativity right now. I think there's a lot of opportunities. Over the weekend, I think on Friday, uh, someone named Alex in... Oregon just launched Empowered Disc Golf, which is, it looks like she's going to be doing some short videos just geared at growing the sport amongst women and kind of showing women how to play and featuring women entrepreneurs and things like that. Um, And I don't know, for me, like (laughs) this last week, I was listening to a non-disc golf podcast about brand building and I was thinking about Ladies of the Chains and just everything we've been able to accomplish so far and the connections we've been able to make and I was kind of floored by the realization that we launched three weeks prior to that like that's just crazy so I think the opportunities are there and I think the more you know people we attract to disc golf that are creative and can think outside the box and can maybe bring just some new ideas of how we do this video coverage how we do live coverage all of those things it's gonna help but With that said, it's even more important that we continue to beat that drum of FPO coverage and, hey, let's get this out there too, because we're really in the process of building this thing right now. All right, very good. So moving from one controversial subject to another, here we go, T-pads. T-pads are certainly, I would say, something we get asked about the most um, from people asking questions to the podcast. So I feel like there's sort of a few different ways to approach this. And when we're talking about T-pads, we're talking about women's T-pads. So shorter T-pads for women. And I think it's a different discussion a little bit between the pro game uh, your, you know, local lower division tournaments, maybe, and then course design as well. So let's start with FPO. Y'all have a little bit more to say about this than I do. Um, I found what Tina had to say really, really intriguing because for my, you know, very amateur newish player to me, it's like, well, yeah, let's have shorter tee pads and that'll totally grow the pro women's game and it makes sense. But after listening to what she said and kind of hearing more sides of the story, it definitely made me think, what do you guys think? All right. Um, I, well, first off, I would like to suggest that we stop calling them women's tee pads and just stick to calling them shorter tee pads. There's no reason to gender a slab of concrete and the, the ability to throw a disc accurately a short distance is not necessarily linked to gender. There are some long tee pads that even Paige Pierce struggles with, and uh, there are some short tee pads that the, you know, there are there will be very old men who are better suited to throwing from the shorter positions, and there are some very young women who will be better suited to throwing from the longer positions. So uh, I'd like to decouple uh, gender from the length of the hole. Uh, the other thing is, I think that there are some holes where a shorter tee pad absolutely does suit the women's game at all levels. There are holes that are essentially wasted holes. And you can, when you look at the postmortem of uh, any uh, 
DGPT event, you've got the statistics for the hole, right? They're available. And you can look and see which holes were basically out of reach of the entire field. Nobody was getting to circle two in regulation. Not happening. But the hole was so straightforward that save for some kind of terrible lapse or error, everybody was taking their par and moving on. Those are the holes that I think must be altered. When this real push was introduced last year, and there was an article that suggested maybe it's time to reassess the women's game in comparison to the men's, because when you have, say, a 450-foot shot from the tee, in the men's game, that's really about accuracy as opposed to distance. But for the women, that's mostly about distance. And that becomes boring. And as Nova said, if everyone is going to end up taking a three minus maybe the one outlier, it's a wasted hole in terms of the overall challenge of the course and getting scoring separation. Saying that, <sighs> touchy subject. Um, when this came up and some TDs were saying, what do women think about this? One of my first things I said was, I am not opposed to the idea, provided you are not ruining the spirit of the hole by shortening the distance from which we're throwing. And I know Tina mentioned that as well. So, as an example, I don't particularly like throwing from turf. I mean, I'll do it, it's fine but I prefer throwing off of concrete. There's a little bit better shoring, or certainty of foot and uh, less variation in what's going to happen when I pivot, things like that. And so if we're going to put alternate settings for the women's game, I want to make certain it's on commensurate surfaces to everyone else who's playing. So if we're going to say, let FPO throw alternative positions. Does that alternative position have another T? Or are they throwing from turf? Um, no, there are obviously people who want to throw from turf. They prefer it just because of the cushioning compared to concrete. It's a little more forgiving on the knees. But if the main course is throwing from concrete, I want to throw from concrete as well. I don't want to be moved up another 100 feet just so I can throw from turf. It's I'm not going to get as good a result to for me. Do you, um, I think it was John Hoke in the latest uh, Disc Golf magazine mm -hmm. talked about this. Do you think that the ratio should be about 50%, that if 50% of the field can't birdie it, then the, it needs to be adjusted? I'm not going to disagree with John Hoke. Fair enough. I will. No. So as we're like sitting here talking about it, I'm really finding myself asking myself, how much does it actually matter? Because especially when we're looking at, let's just say the pro tour and the NTs, right? So for touring players, they're going to see a variety of courses and their courses are going to suit different strengths, whether that's distance or accuracy. And I don't know, like I'm thinking back to Las Vegas, right? Where Sarah Hokum played a very conservative, very accurate game, did just fine. Elaine King, uh, last weekend at Throw Down the Mountain, played her game of just insane accuracy, lost in a playoff for the win, that I think there's still opportunities to play. And it's really kind of a bigger question, I think, about what the soul of disc golf is, if that makes sense. Like if we compare it to ball golf, right, that there's certain tournaments where it's going to take a certain amount under par to win, but you don't see the under par numbers like we see in disc golf. In disc golf, our scoring opportunities are all about birdies and all about really getting as far under par generally as you can. But is there room in the game for it to be not necessarily always about that? Because it's interesting when we have the longer distance because you have players that know they can make it sometimes, right? And like they go for it and lose some accuracy, but again, if you just go for the accurate shots, get even two under where the women's game is at right now at the pro level, you're going to cash, you know? I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's generally axiomatic uh, that 
when you can get to par, um, when you can get your par on every hole, that's like the first major milestone. It means you're playing cleanly. It means you're getting to the green in regulation or getting under the basket in, uh, say, two on a par three. And and it kind of and you're you're taking putts out of the equation as well because also one of the first hurdles is putting well, um, and then I think the second hurdle is, and and the second real tier is getting the long drives, which creates more birdie opportunities. Um, but these are accurate long drives and not just go crazy long drives, unless unless the course allows it, and then of course go crazy. Um, but also the ability to putt from greater and greater ranges with increasing accuracy. I think that's the next tier. So you're right. Disc golf um, has, has an immense birdie problem. Getting to par golf is really just like the first rite of passage. And it's not going to, it's not going to make you super successful as a pro, um, but it is going to put you head and shoulders above almost everybody at the club level. Yeah. And different courses offer different opportunities. And I will say as an intermediate woman player, um, so kind of to talk, shift gears here a little bit and talk more about tee pads from the lower levels and the amateur status. You know, I, I like when there's tournaments that have options. I love that of, okay, if I'm going to play intermediate, I'm going to play from the short pads. And if I'm going to step up to advance, then I'm going to play from the long pads. Cause then it puts it entirely on me to decide what I want to do. That's a fantastic point. I'm glad you brought it up. And I think, Another consideration as disc golf grows is course design. And we're really spoiled here in Kansas City because we have a crazy variety of courses. Like we have a super short, tiny, it's a ton of fun that the longest hole is 200 feet that I can take a beginner to and they can feel really good about and feel like they get a win. Mm -hmm. And I know in other areas that's not going to be the case. So I think, again, just something to consider if you're in an area that's starting to put in courses, something to maybe lobby a little bit for is to have some courses just that you can get an easy win on if you're a new player. I think Nova and I are probably going to speak on the same topic here, but as a shining example of that in the Kansas City area, I want to reference Bad Rock. Mm-hmm. You read my mind. Yep. <laughs> um, Bad Rock is a course that from inception has multiple tees and multiple pin placements on most of its holes. And the ones that it doesn't usually, like hole nine, has a single pin placement and a single tee. But um, it's a technical shot that it's testing everyone's technical ability. And there is no other way to play that hole. Right. So there is one and only one good way for the hole to be set up, thus one tee pad, one basket. But when the course was designed, all of this was taken into consideration. You know, when you have two tee pads and three pin positions, you have incredible customization on what you're going to do on each event, depending on who's playing it. You know, what division, what age groups, stuff like that. A lot of what we're talking about now in terms of let's start using women's tees or alternative tees or whatever we're we're going to give the label as is more of a retrofit. We're trying to find ways of making a course adapt to something that's identified now as a problem but those adaptions don't necessarily have the same considerations, I think, is probably the best for it, of something that was designed at the ground up for that exact purpose. Because you move something up 60 feet doesn't necessarily mean the hole is somehow better. You're making the best of, of the accommodations, but that isn't necessarily ideal either for the course or for the people playing it. I think might be lost in the discussion on alternative tees is maybe we need to look at alternative pins. You know, we could we could use the same tee, but maybe not throw to the same far pin, or maybe put the the new pin placement in something a little bit more technical to challenge different skills. It still allows for scoring separation, but it doesn't require as much maintenance to the course. Okay, so I want to get to our ideas about growing women's disc golf. Uh, specifically. But as we do that, I want to bring up one thing that someone asked about on Facebook while we're on the topic, and that's league handicaps. And I have not played in a mixed gender league, but I've kind of learned a little bit more about that. And Eric Oakley, actually, this last week on Disc Golf Answer Man, I thought had a really good answer just about running leagues in general and kind of having a variety of options week to week. So maybe your league doesn't have the membership to 
have just a purely handicap league, like maybe there's not enough players in your area, but at least having that sometimes. So every player has an opportunity to whether you're playing for cash or just tags or whatever else has an opportunity to do this. I don't know if y'all have more experience with that. We have a lot of experience with that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we, uh, we uh, Kim and I both live in a, sm- a smaller community with a pretty small local uh, disc golf scene. And if we really wanted uh, to give men $10 a week uh, to play disc golf against us, the opportunity is there um, because we would be the two women who show up and then consistently lose again and again and again. And we would be donating our money week after week after week, our 10 bucks. Um, so yeah, some kind of handicap would would get us there playing um, because it's on a course, for example, that we can play anytime we want for free. There's no motivation to just pay 10 bucks a week to lose. I think the handicap system would work if it was done by rating as opposed to gender. So, you know, you look, I mean, obviously this requires the league members to have some kind of PDJ rating so that we could measure it against it, but if I'm 850 and I'm playing in a league with 942 rated players and there are other players in that league with me at 850, regardless of gender, give us the same handicap. Mm-hmm. You know, this this way it's equitable. It's to the player's ability as opposed to saying the women need the handicap. Another thing um, in terms of alternatives to say a handicap and I'm going to give a big shout out to my teammate Jennifer Sawyer on this. Um, when I was asking her, what are some considerations for building a women's league? Don't reward score necessarily week to week to week. Instead, reward progress. So when we're going to pay out at the end of the league or the end of the, the round or however we're doing it, we're going to do it. Who improved the most compared to their average that time? So... If you threw really, really well for you and someone else threw average for them, it doesn't matter what the score was, you threw, you had the improvement commensurate to the average to the league. And that incentivizes improvement without discouraging um, performance based off of just watching someone else crush drives on you. Yeah, what you're describing is a performance flight, basically, mm-hmm. which is a format that has uh, been it's done at a couple of tournaments a year here right. and there. And uh, absolutely, because it gives everybody a chance to go out there and throw above their heads for a day. Right. So piggybacking on that, I want to segue us into our ideas for how to grow the women's game. And I don't want to steal anyone's fire here, but these stories we've heard over and over again, one of the biggest answers is women's leagues. Like that seems to be what is helping women play the sport more what's attracting more women and again like you've heard Rhonda talk about like you heard Tina talk about even if that women's league is small giving the women in your area an opportunity to try out disc golf with other women just seems to be incredibly successful I agree I think this is working and I think we need to give this idea more time uh, to continue to yield fruit in greater and greater quantities Yeah, and I think we need to understand that this is a long game. Um, Women's League are going to grow the number of players playing the sport, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to grow the numbers in the PDGA or the women playing tournaments initially. We talked about this, you know, when I was last on, about the difference between playing competitively and playing casually and making certain you stick to what you love about the sport and making... uh, the commitment not to let competition ruin you if that's not what you want. And for a lot of women's leagues, if you get pressured into playing tournaments because other women in the league are playing, that's going to kind of ruin your eventual participation in the league. Or you you may not show up as much or it's not going to be quite as fun. The women will come to the PDGA to tournaments in time. But this is... uh, this is a long haul. Um, we're looking at numbers for the men in the PDGA right now, and if we compared that to, say, what it was at the tournaments you were watching on YouTube, the men's game have seen a significant explosion in the last couple years and maybe perhaps even decades. It didn't used to be that big. We shouldn't expect the women to have 
an immediate explosion. You know, we need to, I mean, be patient sounds trite, but it's going to come. It's just not going to be immediate. Um, I agree. I've, uh, I was just uh, in the middle of March, uh, the annual uh, PDGA demographics report came out. And that is something I look forward to every year because it gives me a fresh set of talking points to use as ammunition. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I talk to people about things, so mm-hmm. it's good to have facts on my side from time to time. As Amy Crow says, don't <laughs> argue with Nova because she has facts and figures <laughs> and will destroy you. Well, but she'll get your disc out of the water. She so will dope. get your disc out of the water. <laughs> I, I try to destroy people kindly as often as possible. Anyway, um, I was looking at the demographics report, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, because they always come out in mid-March. Uh, and this year, the uh, percentage of women in the PDGA was about 7.4%, which is about the same as it was last year when it was 7.4%, which is about the same as it was the year before that when it was 7.4%. So even though at leagues and in tournaments, the number of women who are showing up is increasing, um, you know, you might be you might be the FPO player one year and there might be two of you the next year. The men's game is growing at the exact same rate. So... Our numbers are increasing, but so are the men's numbers. So we're just treading water with all of this grow the sport effort. The cynic in me says we need to try harder. Uh, and the optimist in me says that we're playing the long game and let's see where it leads. You know, there are there are challenges to getting more women into the sport that the men ne- don't necessarily have. And, you know, there, there are certain more familial commitments and... Uh, just considerations of time that often don't balance out among the genders. And if you want more participation, these are things that sometimes have to be taken into account. Again, kind of to your point, something that I've learned from talking with both of you and listening to your interviews and listening to other people is just that we need to continue to emphasize that people do play this sport for different reasons. I mean, we all have seen the PDGA, you know, for me commercial, right? Absolutely. But it does get, so, you know, get something very right that disc golf means different things to different people. So I think having that in consideration is really good. So back to like the leagues, right? Like in a perfect world, we have maybe a couple different women's leagues where you can either just play casually for fun with your friends and have a designated time that you know there will be other women there to play with you and encourage you. Or when you reach that point where you're like, hey, you know what? I want to play tournaments. I want to be competitive, that there's a competitive option for you as well. And I think that's just a good thing to think about if you're in an area that doesn't have a women's league, if you're thinking about starting one, I think the casual one to Kim's point is definitely the starting point. And I was going to bring up to uh, the PDGA board president, uh, Justin Menichelli was on PDGA radio this last week. And he was kind of addressing some of this and he was talking a lot about education. And I think that's another it's just so important step, um, you know, what Jay and Des are doing with the Edge curriculum, what um, Zoe Ann Dyke and Dustin Keegan are doing with you play disc golf, getting disc golf just in front of kids, because there's also an exposure issue. Around Kansas City, there's a good chance that wherever you live, you're going to drive by somewhere with baskets, and that really helps uh, expose the sport, but that's not the way it is everywhere, and even people who drive by might have no idea what's going on. And on that front big shout out to espn every time you put one of our aces on yeah prime time yeah because that's really in some ways the first big exposure to the sport a lot of people out there are going to have thank you for that yeah especially for the the ace from the glass blown open on hole 11 which was really the first one we saw on espn i mean that was an amazing shot and even me at the time, who had just got her feet wet into the sport and had, you know, still very much a novice player, I saw that and I'm like, oh my goodness, the skill that took to do that. And you know, aces are, are largely luck, but just to throw as accurately at the basket as he did, oh, even people who don't play disc golf can see that. Mm-hmm. They can recognize oh, yeah. what that is and feel a little bit of excitement when eventually it, it hits chains and you're like, mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> Someone did that. Someone right. hit that. And the fact that 
you know, we've had Paige there, mm-hmm. as opposed to just Paul and Ricky and, and Jeremy and some of the others. The fact that Paige is there and, and Val and some of the um, other women who have hit aces, this is big. Because there are young female athletes are going to see this and hopefully will want to try to emulate it. So yeah, exposure and education are really important. And I'm going to try to kind of tie a neat little bow on a lot of the things that we just talked about. Uh, Here in Kansas City on the Kansas side, there is a course, it's a full 18 holes at a middle school. And it's great because it's really close to where I work. So when I have breaks and once summer hits, sometimes, you know, before after work, I'll go there and play and the tee pads aren't great. But the holes are all between 200 to 300 feet. It's at a middle school. In this area, it's a huge, huge school district. So you have all of these parents, all of these kids that are exposed to disc golf literally every day. And that's pretty fantastic. So one last thing uh, before we close this segment, somebody on Reddit of all places. But yes, there are some really, really good people on Reddit. I've seen both of them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But... A man asked about what he could do to help grow women's disc golf and how he should have kind of approach it. And I kind of feel like a large, just very kind of all-encompassing question that if you really want to do that, to ask yourself is simply this, is what I'm doing making women feel wanted? Whether that's at a tournament, whether that's on the course, whether that's just your local players that you're you're hanging out with. Um, just taking a second to think about that, I think can make a big difference. I don't know, what do you guys think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, uh, if you approach any matter, any logistical matter, particularly, um, I'm going to talk about tournaments for a moment yeah. with the uh, question of, wait, what are the women going to do? You can make tremendous headway. Local tournament organizer, um, I'm going to go ahead and shout him out by name, Rob Martin. Yep. Um, ask the question, well, what are the women going to do at, uh, tournaments where there are no permanent bathroom facilities or where they're still locked up because it's early spring or it's now very late autumn. But the point of it is, um, if you're asking a question about uh, what are they going to do for lunch? What are they going to do for the bathroom? What are they going to do this or that or the other? Think, what are the women going to do? Uh, because if the answer is, I don't know, or they are out of luck on this one, then you found a flaw, something that needs to be corrected. Yeah. And I think to your point too, like, We'll use Rob as an example, but if you're going to have players packs, maybe having a variety of discs if you can in a few different weights. Uh, if weights. you're going to have, yeah, if you're going to have t-shirts, making sure you have all the sizes available uh, for everybody. And obviously, that's not even a gender thing. That's just kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, maybe even the things that you say to people on the courses, right? That there may be a woman player close by, and you know. Maybe everyone will laugh at your joke there in the moment, but maybe you're going to turn that woman off from disc golf for forever, you know, that just taking a little bit of extra consideration can really go a long way if that's your goal is to, you know, grow the sport. Oh, for sure. Because uh, she's not going to fill out a survey response card on the way out the door. She's leaving the sport that says, you know, um, you know, um, the environment was very poor and that's why I'm not coming back. Mm -hmm. You're just not going to see her again. And nobody's going to know why. That also applies in many ways to the behavior of all players at non-sanctioned play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The treatment a new female player gets on a public course from strangers is going to largely determine her involvement with the sport going forward. And that could preclude her from seeking out women's leagues. It could preclude her from ever playing a competitive event. You know, if you're out there and you're uncomfortable, either at that park or just in general from the the players around you, that's one player lost, or if not more, because we talk to each other and word gets around. Being considerate to all players on the course, regardless of gender, age, or an ability, is very, very important. So the question the Redditor asked goes far beyond just competition and beyond tournaments. You know, just basically be a good person. Mm-hmm. Be a good person and treat other people well. And that, that'll grow the sport a long way by keeping people in the sport. 
good conversation, y'all. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. So now we've reached our listener question segment and our question comes from Tyler on Facebook and he asks, who is the next player to challenge Paige Pierce? Are we going to see a sweep on tournaments this year? What do y'all think? No, we won't see a sweep. And that's just because that kind of pace isn't sustainable in the long term. Um, one of the things Paige herself mentioned on her morning coffee that she did with Dynamic a couple days ago was the top women that challenge her are actually pretty good. Yes, she has won a lot in the last year and a half, and some of her victories have been dominant ones, but it's not easy to keep that kind of pace by any stretch of the imagination. And the top women, they are going to get her this year at some point in time. It's it's just going to happen. Paul doesn't win everything. Ricky doesn't win everything. Paige is not going to win everything. No, I'm not saying that she's not going to have a phenomenal year and take down a lot of the big ones. She she very well might. But to say that she isn't being challenged, I think, isn't giving the other women enough credit. Uh, I agree with everything uh, that Kim just said. Um, and as far as uh, the question, because uh, it's a multi-part question, as, part of, as far as the segment of the question goes, which is, who is the next dominant player uh, to really challenge Paige Pierce? I'm going to say... We may not know her name yet. I think that there is going to be some 16 to 18-year-old player who's playing right now who very few people know about, who may be regionally famous, who is just going to come out of nowhere and kill everything they see. Maybe not this year. Maybe maybe next year. Maybe the year after that. I think that at the rate of growth of disc golf, I think that we are seeing increasingly a focus on athleticism that is just going to completely upend uh, the way things are. And I think some young, very athletic player who ha- is very athletically minded, which Paige Pierce is, by the way, is just going to come out of nowhere and it's going to be absolutely amazing. And we don't know her name yet. Mm -hmm. And I agree with both of your points for sure. Uh, That was what I was going to say too, that certainly other players are going to win an FPO this year, uh, not just Paige. And I think maybe we haven't seen that next dominant player yet, but I think part of Paige's dominance that we can't forget either. She is an incredible closer. And that's certainly something we've seen this season. Her mental game is really strong and I think there's, you know, maybe some younger players, even in FPO right now, like Kona, Kona Panis comes to mind that as they develop that, you know, we could see one of them uh, rise to dominance as well. And to your point, certainly, you know, Kat, Sarah, Lisa, Jessica, all of these players that are very, very good uh, could get on a roll. You know, it's entirely possible that we may see somebody else win multiple tournaments this year. So that brings us to FPO wrap up. So not really any big FPO action going on uh, this weekend, but last weekend we saw quite a bit of A-tiers and players playing around the country. Uh, Madison Walker and Elaine King had a playoff at the Throwdown the Mountain. And there was a great post by Madison on Facebook that I encourage everyone to look at uh, just where she was talking about the playoff with Elaine King and, and hanging out with her and just the whole experience. I thought it was really insightful and a really cool read. And man, Madison Walker's won two A-tiers this year. She won two A-tiers back-to-back, so that's pretty cool. And I know Terry did some coverage of that tournament um, that should be out on the FPO side. In the Daniel Bow, Lisa Fakus took the win. Leslie Todd and Kona Panis also played really well taking second and third and Katrina Allen had a comeback win at the open at Flat Creek Uh, Hokum came in second Rebecca Cox played above her rating all three rounds and came in third and y'all mentioned the Monkey Island open earlier I want to give uh Liz Borg Bowman a shout out for winning intermediate uh women 
in that tournament. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Cynthia Ricciotti. She had a comeback win in Advanced Women. And we were talking earlier, man, if you want to talk about somebody who is the future of the sport, who is doing so much in her community to grow the sport and just an all around fantastic human being, that's Cynthia. And we look forward to hopefully having her on the show soon. Any other FPO wrap up thoughts? All right. Very good. Okay, everyone, it's time for our first giveaway. So Val Jenkins was kind enough to send us a couple Disc Golf for Women stamped Discraft discs, a Thrasher and a Buzz. So I'm going to post a pic of them on Facebook and Instagram uh, pages later today. And if you'd like to enter, like our Facebook or Instagram page, like the post, comment if you want to enter for the Thrasher, the Buzz or both and tag a friend. And for an optional extra entry, rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, and we'll give away each disc separately next Monday. All right, y'all, that's our show. Do you have any shout outs before we get out of here? No, I definitely want to give a shout out to Madison Walker. I know she had a hard season last year and to come back and win two A tiers so early into 2018 is really good progress for her. I'm, I'm happy to see that she's getting uh, better quickly. Yeah. Um, I also want to shout out Kona Panis. Uh, we talked about her, I think, uh, two episodes ago and her performance at the memorial. And we saw her initially, a lot of us, I think, on uh, Chumps versus Chumps playing with Paul before Hannah took over. And it's exciting to see her grow and be on lead cards and have top five finishes. So I'm really happy that Kona is doing well in Des, wherever you are, get well soon. The yes. sport misses you. Mm-hmm. Yes, amen. Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out again to Cynthia Ricciotti, uh, first place in advanced. Uh, she's uh, one of the finest human beings I know, better than better than anyone else. And a shout out to my sponsor, um, Ozone Discs. They're sending me an above ground level Cypress, which they make for above ground level. And I can't wait to get my hands on it and give it a few throws. Very cool. Thank you so much for listening. My thanks to Nova, Kim, and Tina for joining me today. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, visit our website, ladiesofthechains.com, where you can click on the support button or email us if you're interested in a sponsorship. Your support will enable the podcast to continue to grow. You can also find us on Facebook or email us your questions and comments to ladiesofthechains at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, if you would be so kind to rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you are listening on. Have a great couple of weeks. We'll see you next time here on the Ladies of the Chains Disc Golf Podcast.